If you'd like to turn to your Bibles, we're reading from 1 Peter, starting at verse 10 of chapter 1. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when, the, when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life you hand, sorry, um, redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Well, I think it was about six years ago now that scenes of jubilation broke out as London was awarded the 2012 Olympics. But of course, that was a culmination of many years of hard work before that. Apparently, the British Olympic Association had started work in 1997 on the bid for the 2012 Olympics. And since the award, many people have been working hard to get everything ready for next summer. Various stadiums are being built. Uh, might even be finished on time. Ticket allocation process has been completed, which may not be to your satisfaction. And uh, athletes are, are training, ready for next, next year. As we get into next year, the hype will get greater. The sermons will be more full of Olympics illustrations, which I apologise already. And July will come. We'll be glued to our sets for a couple of weeks as we cheer on our British athletes. And then, of course, it will all be over. And for the few athletes who won medals, they'll be reliving those moments. But for most of us, we'll get back to life as it was and look forward to the next sporting event. Yes, the Olympic Stadium will remain, depending on which football club buys it. But in 10 years' time, other than the sports trivia enthusiasts, I wonder how many people will be able to remember the names of those who took part, let alone those who won medals unless they were British. Well, today on this first Sunday in Advent, we're looking at a far more important event than the Olympics. We're looking at an event which um, had preparations, which didn't just take a few years. 
They started before the creation of the world. We're looking, of course, at the coming of Jesus into this world. And the question I want to ask you this morning is, why was the coming of Jesus so important? What difference does it make to us today? Why does it still impact us today, 2,000 years on from that event? Well, the first reason I want to give you, it comes out in this passage that um, Alistair read from us from 1 Peter 1. It's the fact that it's what the Old Testament prophets longed for. They longed for this event to happen. Just look at verse 10 there. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. I think we sometimes assume that the Holy Spirit made his first appearance at Pentecost, and before that he doesn't really do an awful lot, but he was around before the creation of the world. He was around when God decided to choose to send his Son to redeem the world. And God didn't just spring this plan on his people. Jesus didn't suddenly arrive and announce the coming of the kingdom and uh, take people by surprise. They were waiting expectantly for the Messiah. And how had God announced that plan? Well, it was through the Spirit pointing the prophets to Jesus Christ. And here we read that the Spirit of Christ, so called because he points us to Christ, was in the prophets as he is in us today, if we are Christians. He was pointing them to Christ. And they were searching intently with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances when he would come. It was the Spirit who prompted Micah to say, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, although you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. It was the Spirit who prompted Isaiah to say, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Most exciting of all, the Spirit told Isaiah to say, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds, we are healed. The starting accuracy of all these many prophecies in the Old Testament proved to us that it was the Spirit who was pointing them in the right direction. And if you look over at chapter 2, verse um, 22 and onwards there in in 1 Peter, we see uh, Peter quoting and paraphrasing these prophecies from Isaiah to demonstrate that these have been fulfilled in Jesus. Here is the means by which salvation would come, by which man would be reconciled to God. And Jesus himself gives us quite an interesting insight to what the prophets would have been thinking and feeling when they made these prophecies. If you just turn back with me to Matthew chapter 13, verse 16, it's on page 979 of the Church Bibles. And he says this, Matthew 13, verse 16. Jesus speaking to his disciples, Blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. 
For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men longed to see what you see, but did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Disciples hearing and seeing with their own eyes the person of Jesus Christ, the person through whom their salvation would come. The prophets would have done anything to see and hear what you are now, Jesus is saying to them. They were prophesying about something they knew they would not be around to experience for themselves. It's a bit like Moses, you having brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, having been with them for 40 years in the wilderness, and then stood on the edge of the promised land. He himself would not experience what they would in the promised land. And the sad thing is, though, is that it took the disciples so long to understand that these prophecies were about Jesus. And even after Jesus' death on the, the road to Emmaus, the two disciples, they're feeling quite sorry for themselves. And Jesus came alongside them. And without revealing to them who he was, he said to them, how foolish you are, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. The full meaning of those prophecies couldn't be understood until Christ appeared. And it was not until after the death of Christ that the disciples really grasped what this was all about. When the prophets prophesied, the full meaning for them was still hidden. It was, it was dim, as we sang about earlier on. And so in this letter that Peter is writing, he's writing to the early Christians and saying, look, these prophets actually ministered to you. You're the ones who are benefiting from those prophecies. Look, at, look down at verse 12 of uh, chapter 1 there. It was revealed to them, that's the prophets, that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that now have been told you by those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Peter's saying, look, you are privileged that these things that were prophesied many years ago have now come to pass. You're living in an amazing time in history. Because Jesus has come, and in coming, he's achieved something incredible for you. And when people preach to you the gospel, he's saying, it was the same Holy Spirit who spoke to the prophets, the Spirit who was sent from heaven to enable you to understand the gospel message. It's the same Holy Spirit who speaks to us today. That's why, again, we were singing that song, asking the Spirit to to open our minds to, to see him as we read the word of God. It's him who gives us understanding, It's him who stirs our souls with with excitement to know more. The prophets were excited about the coming of Jesus. How excited are we that he has come, that he's revealed his grace, and that he will come again? Well, the coming of Jesus is what the prophets, Old Testament prophets, longed for, and even angels long to look into these things, to see the impact of the gospel on people's lives. But why else is Jesus coming important. Well, secondly, it's what saves us. It's what saves us. What the prophets longed to see was this salvation. Verse, uh, turn over to verse 20. It's there, it says there, he, Christ, was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times, that's the time before, between Jesus' death and, and, and his coming again, for your sake. He was revealed for you. For you readers, he's saying, it was, it was revealed for us. 
And it's easy to miss the significance of this. You know, the, the God of the universe who's infinitely powerful, who's infinitely wise, who's holy, should choose before the beginning of time to enter this world, to enter time and space for our sake. You've got to ask yourself, how can we possibly be worth that? That he was thinking so long ago that we needed to be redeemed. And it becomes even more incredible when we realise what he actually did for our sake. Have a look back at page 18, verse 18 on the previous page. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed, redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from, our, from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Christ redeemed us. He, he purchased us. He, he made us his own. He saved us from an empty way of life. I don't know if you've ever been to a place that was full, I'm sure you have, and then seen it empty. An empty football stadium after a match. An empty theatre after a show. Maybe an empty underground station after everybody gets on the train and the train leaves the station. It's quite an eerie feeling. An empty way of life points to something being missing. And what is missing from our lives without Jesus is a sense of purpose, it's a sense of meaning. American writer Eric Hoffer wrote this, he said, Our greatest pretenses are built up, not to hide the evil and the ugly in us, but our emptiness. The hardest thing to hide is something that is not there. Jesus came to save us from that emptiness and, and give our lives meaning. But the price of that was his life, the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, the perfect, holy God, a price far greater than any amount of gold or silver, a price that only God can pay. And Jesus said himself, he came not to, to be served, he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And in doing that, he accomplished what had been planned before the creation of the world. That he would come, that he would die, that he would rise again for the salvation of all those chosen in him. And to know that we've been loved since before the world was created is quite an amazing thing. I guess the problem is that not everybody realises that love, not everybody realises that they need saving. Probably often because they fill their life, the, the emptiness of their lives with other things. And many of those things that people do fill their lives with are actually enjoyable things, aren't they? After all, many of them have been provided by God himself. Friendship, family, leisure pursuits, even work. But by relying on those things, people often create a false impression of a full life. Because what those things, good as they may be, can't replace, can't fill, is a spiritual void. And unless God has come into our lives, we'll be spiritually empty. And that is our greatest need, whether we realise it or not. Peter sums it up over in uh, chapter 3, verse 18, a verse which is uh, one worth uh, committing to memory if you haven't done so. It's chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Grace has come to us in Jesus Christ and by the power of the Spirit we can know 
the blessings of that grace. We can know forgiveness. We can know reconciliation with God. We can know the promise of a future inheritance. And this is where his reappearing comes in. He didn't just appear once to save us from sin. He will appear again to give us the fulfillment of those promises. Look back at verse 14 of chapter chapter 1. He says, Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. What is that, that future grace? Well, I have a look back at, sorry we're flicking around 1 Peter here, but we're getting a good overview of the letter. It's a great letter. Um, have a look at verse 3 of 1 Peter 1. It says there, in his great mercy he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. Kept in heaven for you. He saved us from the consequences of sin, but he's also saved us for something much greater, much more wonderful. It is that inheritance kept for us in heaven. It's being glorious with Christ. We're going to share an eternal glory with Jesus Christ, and we rejoice in that. Well, I hope this um, demonstration of, of grace will leave you quite amazed. I hope the promise of future grace will leave you amazed because you know, it should do, shouldn't it? But it shouldn't just leave us amazed because if Christ came to save us from an empty way of life, then clearly our way of life is important to him. And if we are those who've known what it is to be rescued, we'll be wanting to do all we can to avoid that old way of life. Which brings us on to our third point. Why is the coming of Christ so important? Because it's what motivates us to godly living. It's what motivates us to godly living. The first part of this uh, chapter of 1 Peter, verses 3 to 9, talk about this salvation. They talk about the the blessings of that salvation. Um, The beginning of the passage we've been looking at this morning, verse 10, carries on concerning this salvation and talks about the prophets. And then when we get to verse 13, it leads into therefore. In other words, in view of all that I've been talking to you about concerning salvation up to this point, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Now, these are clear demands about the way we should live our lives, but it's essential to remember that these come after the description of what Christ has done for us. He saved us. He's given us new birth into a living hope. That hope is a gift from God, and it's because of that gift that we are called to live in it. You can't set your hope on the grace that is to come without already having experienced that grace in your lives already. Jesus didn't save us for us to carry on living the way we used to. What would be the point in that? Be like somebody 
a smoker who, who's suffering from lung cancer, being given, being given a lung transplant and then carrying on smoking. What does this godly living look like? Well, let's have a look at um, each of these commands in turn. The first one is prepare your minds for action. Literally, gird up the loins of your minds, which probably doesn't mean much to, to us today, but in the um, uh, context, in the ancient custom in that part of the world, there's a sense of uh, gathering up your long robes, um, putting them between your legs, tying them around with a, a belt so you could run and you'd be ready for action. Basically, image of being ready to respond immediately. Immediately you're called. A bit like um, Mark Nunn's noted up in the, the gallery there when he's on call and his bleeper goes and he's got a fire to get to. He hasn't got time to, to say goodbye to everybody. He's off. So don't take offence if he does suddenly disappear. As Christians, we should always be ready, shouldn't we? We should be ready for action for when Christ comes again. Making sure he won't be caught out when he arrives. If you watch a football or rugby match, you'll see um, the substitutes usually warming up on the side of the pitch, ready in case they need to be brought on to play in the game. Because when the manager makes that decision to bring on those substitutes, they are straight into the action. They haven't got time to, to warm up. They're into it. And when Jesus comes again, it will be too late to try and warm up. Prepare your minds for action is to fill your minds with godly thoughts. Be ready to obey him at once. And it's interesting, isn't it, that it says minds, because that is where the things that will distract us from Christ will often start. Our minds can play havoc with us, can't they? They can uh, make us feel useless, even when there's no reason for us to feel like that. They can make us feel that God doesn't care when he's shown us how much he loves us by sending Christ to die for us. Our minds can be enticed by the superficial attractions of this world. They can be filled with evil thoughts when somebody has wronged us. Which is why we need to prepare and train them for action. Fill them with the promises of God from his word. Well, the second command, prepare your minds for action. Secondly, be self-controlled. And we'll literally be sober. Don't get drunk, because drink will dull your reactions. We know that. A driver's reactions are slower when his mind has been affected by, by alcohol. And it's not just our reactions that are affected by alcohol, is it? It's our moral inhibitions. We do, we say things when we're drunk, which we would not otherwise say if we were sober. And we live to regret it. We're more vulnerable to, to the devil. But this is not just getting here at the effects of, of drink, of alcohol. It's saying... Pray that the Spirit who indwells you would enable you to do and say the things which would be honouring to God, which he would be pleased to see and hear. Be alert to the danger of sin. Think of a bodyguard protecting a a VIP, the way they're constantly looking around for for danger, for, for possible assassins. That's the image that we should be adopting in our minds, being aware of harmful influences that would distract us from God. Because they will be subtle. And before we know it, we will be trying to justify something we've done that we, we know we shouldn't have done. And then finally, the other commands to, to be holy, to, to live in reverent fear, are really summarising all of, all of this, this, this idea of being concerned 
about our Father in heaven seeing our actions and being displeased by them and having to discipline us. Don't think of him as some sort of big brother figure, but think of him as a friend who you just don't want to disappoint. Well, as we come to the end, Christmas is, um, is nearly here. And uh, before we know it, it will be over. But in this Advent period, just um, think how much those Old Testament prophets longed for the coming of Christ. And remember how privileged you are to be able to open your Bible, to read all about what he said and what he did. His coming is important. It's important because it's what the prophets longed for. It's important because it's what saves us. And it's important because it motivates us for godly living. Jesus will return one day. And the question is, will we be ready for him? Will he find us spiritually alert and ready for action? Or will he find us sleeping? Well, let me finish with verse 13, which reminds us of the the riches of his grace that we are yet to receive when he comes again. And think of this as we, as we leave this service this morning. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed.